0: Good morning, everyone. How you doing? It's the first time I've preached in this building, I'm realizing right now. <laughs> it's just, you know, you have in your mind that you're going to do it, and this is what I <laughs> remembered in my <laughs> preparation, but it's good to be with you. It's good to have all of you in one building. Last time we were in the chapel, and I think it was really hot, and we were all uncomfortable, and <laughs> uh, but here we are, and God's been good to us uh, over the course of this year. Uh, what we're going to do this morning is, uh, as you know, we're, we're walking in this month through the book of Psalms, uh, through some passages there. And we're going to look this morning at Psalm 22. Now, we're going to look at two. Psalm 22 is not a short one, but we're going to read the whole thing. But we're also going to look at Matthew uh, 27. So I want you to put your thumbs in both places uh, to start. I'm going to pray for us in a minute, but I want you to get to both places. So Matthew 27 and Psalm 22. Uh, let's pray before we read. God's word. Uh, Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and just ask that you would go before us and that you would open our hearts to your word and what you have to say to us, uh, that we would be a changed people because of it and that you would receive all the praise and glory for that. God, I pray that you would encounter people this morning where they are, you would help them to be encouraged by you and by your word. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen. Now this section of scripture from Matthew that we're gonna look at uh, is interesting in in a couple of ways. It's it's the, the narrative of the crucifixion, but what we notice is that Jesus famously says at the end of it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what he is doing is he's pulling the first words from Psalm 22. And what's interesting to me is that Jesus in the midst of the apex of his suffering turns to a song, He's turning to music. He's turning to song to receive hope and and help for his soul. That's just fascinating to me because he's, he's quoting one line, but you and I know when we know a song, as the Jewish people knew all these songs, you don't remember just the one line, you remember the whole song. And ancient church tradition, well, you can't exactly derive it from the text with a ton of confidence, but there are enough quotes from Jesus over the course of his crucifixion that it's like he picks up reading the song, the psalms, singing through the psalms, beginning in verse 22, and he doesn't end until he gets to 31, verse 5, where he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so it's almost as if this, the psalms are the soundtrack for Jesus' soul as he's enduring suffering and crucifixion, and we'll see that. As I read the narrative, I want you to pay attention when we go to the psalm of how many details there are from a psalm written long before Jesus was born at the pen of David that he gives to the choir master. He says, okay, I've got this psalm. I want you to write it down. Here's the tune it's supposed to go to. And I want you to prepare this for the congregation to be able to sing. Okay, and this is what Jesus has in mind when he comes to this psalm. And the the parallels in, in, in Psalm 22 to what's happening in Matthew are astounding. And Matthew includes them so that we will be astounded. Okay, so let's look at Matthew 27, beginning in verse 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See, do it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, that compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He cannot not save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let him deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, leme sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you and my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They are open wide, their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it so what i want to do this morning is i want us to trace there's a lot of a lot of words here a lot of dialogue and i want to trace for us just to summarize what the the kind of flow of the psalm is, and then I want to talk about four lessons that we can learn from this psalm. So first, let's trace out what's happening here. We see first, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first couple of verses, he's laying out his complaint to God. And then he moves and he recalls God's goodness to to his fathers, how the fathers cried out and delivered him. And then he turns to his circumstances and describes his circumstances to God. And then turns back around and recalls again the goodness of God, but not this time to his fathers, but to him as a baby. And then he offers a plea. Don't be far from me. And then he comes back and describes his circumstances again, how he's surrounded and he's helpless. Then he turns back around again and pleads again. And then in this plea, deliverance comes. And what's amazing, and this happens in our lives, is that we will be in the midst of crying out and the answer will come right when we need it. It interrupts our prayer even. The flow of this text is just, it was obnoxious to me that I'm reading through it. And it says, you expect him to... It says, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And you expect him to say, because he has been talking about these bulls that surround him, that save me from the bull. But it says, you have rescued me from the horns of the wild ox. And before he even asks it, before he even gets to help me in this one, God comes through and, surra- and, and delivers him. And so then this results in a response, a, a praise, and there are three things that happen. He, he goes into the congregation and he praises. And then he tells the congregation, you also praise with me because he's, he, doesn't, he doesn't not hear. He hears the cries of those who want him. And then it turns into a message of, of deliverance, of this message of the, the Lord of the universe saves those who cry out and who are afflicted. And all the nations... Families from all the nations will proclaim the righteousness of God that He has done this thing. So that's the flow of the psalm. So, what can we learn from this? There are four things. Number one, we can learn how to complain to God, how to complain. Number two, how to plead with God. Number three, what the nature of deliverance is. And number four, what the purpose of affliction is. So, how to complain how to plead, what the nature of deliverance is. And lastly, really, what's the purpose, the meaning of our suffering? So if you were here uh, last week, you may recall that Ryan talked about how the the Psalms are a place where we can express our our sorrows and just the, the range of human emotion in the 150 Psalms that we can go to them and find a place where what we're experiencing can be expressed. And it's a place in the scripture where David and other songwriters composed music and lyrics for the congregation to be able together to cry out these kinds of expressions. And here in Psalm 22, we learn how to complain to God. Now, the definition that you have of complaining is different than the one I'm using here. There's a way to complain that is okay. We hear our kids complain and we say, no whining, (laughs) no complaining, This is a complaint. There's no doubt about it. But there's a way to offer a complaint and there's a way not to. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. When we bring our complaints to God, one of the things that I think we need to remember is that even bringing a complaint to God is an expression of faith. Bringing a complaint to God is an expression of faith because what we could do in the midst of trouble is not turn to God. We could turn to whatever it is that we use to cope with whatever's hard. TV, food, drugs, alcohol, whatever it is, we can turn to a lot of things, but it expresses faith when we turn to God. And what the enemy would love to tell you is that you're in the midst of sorrow, you feel like maybe you're having this trouble with God that he can't be trusted and yeah, you better not go to him. You're right. You, you're, you don't have enough faith to go to him. But that's not what God wants you to do. He wants you to go to him with what you have. And it's faith that takes you there. So don't go, I don't have enough faith, therefore I'm not acceptable for God, he's not gonna hear me. Just the fact that you're turning to him with your sorrows is faith enough for him to hear you. So first recognize that faith is present in your complaint, But second, we need to be mindful of the tone of our complaint. See, our, our complaints are not to be bitter-hearted murmurs or statements accusing God. He is always good and he's always just. And in our complaining, we should be careful not to slander God or to render verdicts about his character that are untrue. You see, we live in a time where self-identification and being authentic, being true to yourself is the apex of human virtue. And if anyone challenges your self-identification, they are, they're, it gone. Because this is the main thing. The main thing is who I am. And so if I wanna express who I am, I can come in and tell God who I am, and it doesn't matter. No, we don't come to God with our complaints that way. We should not live in denial of how we're feeling what we're thinking, but when we approach God, we come to a God who is holy and who is a consuming fire. And we should not imagine that he is indifferent to our posture toward him when we come to him. 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And Hebrews 4.16 says that we can come boldly, we can come confidently to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. But coming boldly to the throne of grace is not the same as coming proudly or nonchalantly to the throne of grace. So when we come with our complaint, we come in faith and we come with a humble spirit that complains not, God, you're not good. I see the dots in my life. I've lined them up and I've painted a picture. And the deduction is that you're not good. We don't want to go there. We can come and say, God, you've forsaken me. You're supposed to be here. You're somebody who helps helpless people. I'm a helpless person and you're not here. What's going on? You don't say you're not good, you just say you're not here. See the difference. There's a difference. When we come to God with our complaints, which he wants us to do, we come with the right posture. Complaints offered humbly when expressing disappointment with how God seems to be treating you are not outside of what this psalm allows for us to do. So David and Jesus both pour out their complaint to God. Next, what does it look like for us to plead with God? That is, how do we build a case before God that he should listen to us? that he should act on our behalf. Now, well, First of all, do not build your case on the wrong evidence. Don't build your case on the wrong evidence. That is, if you wanna build a case for why God should listen to you in the midst of intense grief and sorrow, do not build your case on your merits. Do not build your case on your merits. Don't build your case on how long you've been a Christian, how long you've gone to church, How many ways you've served the church, the sacrifices you've made to your family, how much integrity you have at work. Don't build your case on your merits. If you want to build a case for why God should listen to you in the midst of sorrow and grief, then build a case on how utterly helpless you are. Build your case on how utterly helpless you are. That's what we see in the text. Look at verses 6 through 8 of Psalm 22. He's building his case. He says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. He's scorned, he's despised, he's mocked. They're mocking the very faith that he has in God. In verse 12 through 18, again, he's making the case for how helpless he is. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All of my bone, bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the death of death. And he's helpless. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. He's surrounded, he's overpowered, he's threatened, he's exhausted. He's tortured, spent, robbed, and exploited. And if David and Jesus build a case for their helplessness to help them have God hear them, then we should do that too. So not only do we not build our case on our merits, but on our helplessness, we remind God how he treats those who are helpless. Read verses four through five. It says, "In you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, in you they trusted and were not put to shame. And again in verses nine through 10. Yet you are who took me, he who took me from from the womb. You made me trust at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. I've been dependent on you from the very beginning. And I'm dependent on you just like a baby is dependent on his mother right now. I am utterly helpless. There is no strength left in me to do anything to defend me with what's around me. I'm helpless. I can do nothing. So we build our case not on our merits but on our helplessness and then we appeal to God that remember God, you are a God who helps those who are helpless so come and help me. Charles Spurgeon was a popular uh, preacher, powerful preacher in the late 1800s. He was plagued from, plagued with pain from gout which is just a severe form of arthritis. They didn't have the modern medicine that we do now and he was so uncomfortable that his feet and his body hurt so much that he couldn't lay down for very long without having to roll to another position to try to get comfortable. He couldn't stand for more than a couple of minutes at a time before the pain was so much he'd have to find another position. He was just tossing and turning and could never find comfort. And one day, he said, when I was racked some months ago with pain to an extreme degree so that I could no longer bear it without crying out, I asked all to go from the room and to leave me alone And then I had nothing I could say to God but this. You are my father and I am your child and you as a father are tender and full of mercy. I could not bear to see my child suffer as you make me suffer. And if I saw him tormented as I am now, I would do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Will you hide your face from me, my father? Will you still lay on a heavy hand and not give me a smile from thy countenance? and thus Spurgeon pleaded. And when the others had returned to the room, he said, I shall never have such pain again from this moment, for God has heard my prayer. And Spurgeon said, I bless God that ease came at that, and that racking pain never returned. So what Spurgeon does is he doesn't come to God with his merits. He comes to God with his utter helplessness and saying, God, you're the kind of God who cares about people who are helpless. And so come and help me, and God comes through for Spurgeon. But this, of course, begs the question, well, okay, that happened for Spurgeon. And if I look back on my life, yes, there have been times when the suffering that I'm undergoing, God came through for me, but this suffering right now, this is worse than it's ever been before. And this seems to be going on longer than it's ever gone on before. And I want to acknowledge it in saying that what I've said so far, I'm at risk of presenting to you a formula for how to get from God what you want. We've looked at how to complain to God. We've looked at how to make a case before God so that he will listen to you. And while this pattern is present in the psalm and it's here for our instruction, so is the rest of the psalm. And we will do well to pay attention to the balance of it. So let's keep going and look at it and see if we can find something that helps us to endure when deliverance doesn't seem to actually come the way we want it to or when we want it to. This brings us to point three, understanding the nature of deliverance, the nature of deliverance. Now, when we have deliverance in mind, we have in mind that God will deliver us from our circumstances, that he will um, make our circumstances change or he will pluck us out of them. And it's entirely acceptable to have this notion of deliverance in mind, because it's not beyond God and his power to deliver in just that way. And in the case of David and of Christ, they were surrounded and weak and unable to defend themselves. And so the natural deliverance for them would be to have the mockers to go away, to have the pain to cease, to restore strength and for someone to remove them from their circumstances and I don't think that they're ruling this out in their plea to the father for in verse 20 it says, deliver my soul from the sword and my precious life from the power of the dog. But David and Jesus ask for something specific alongside of their pleas for deliverance and we see it in verse 11 and 19. In verse 11 it says, be not far from me and in verse 19, do not be far off. See, what they ask for in their deliverance is the nearness of God. So maybe their circumstances don't change, but God, would you draw near to me? If you look at the nature of the complaint in the beginning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far away from me? I want you to be close. You're not close. I'm in trouble, and you're not close to me. When grief and sorrow and burden linger longer than we hope, it helps to remember that the nature of deliverance during intense suffering is sometimes not that we are now removed from those circumstances or that those circumstances change, but that God draws near to us. Now, like some of you in the room, uh, we grew up in an era when you could go and scour the neighborhood for a bottle, and on the bottle would say redeem for five cents, or if you got a big one, it'd be 15 cents. Some of you remember that. And I would go, and some of my friends, we'd scour the neighborhood like a bunch of, I don't know what we looked like, but it was rugrats running around scouring garbages and whatever because we wanted these bottles, right? And we would take them, and we'd go to the clerk at the store, and we'd turn them in, and he'd give us our dimes and nickels. And you could go to the candy aisle, and you could get a Charleston Chew. That was my favorite one. It was the biggest one. Why, why, wouldn't, why wouldn't you get the big one, right? And for a quarter, I could get that. And then my friends and I, we would go off into the woods to the fort we had built and we would chow down on our candy. And then we would go home and we would not tell mom about it at all. And we would, of course, forget to brush our teeth. And then you go to the dentist. And at the dentist, they do the checkup. You've got a lot of cavities. We're going to put down two appointments for you. And I hated the dentist. I mean. The pediatric dentist we have now, I didn't have Nemo on the ceiling as I'm laying in the chair with cool sunglasses like my kids have. I'm like, I don't know where that came from. I had the highlights magazine with a picture here and a picture here and circled the difference between. This was supposed to distract me from what was about to happen, right? But it doesn't distract you. You go sit in that chair and the sweat starts piling up on your back. You're hanging on for dear life, and then they get out the needle. And I had a reputation with this dentist, I didn't hold still for needles. I still don't hold still for needles. It takes a lot of mental preparation for me to hold still for needles. But what they would do with me, because I couldn't hold still, is they would bring my mom into the room, and my mom would look at me, and she'd say, Brian, I'm here for you. Hold my hand and squeeze it as hard as you need to. You know, I'm seven years old, eight, nine years old, and I'm squeezing with all I've got for that 15 minutes that it takes them to put that Novocaine in there. I don't know why it takes so long, but, but I would squeeze her hand and she would just look at me and say, it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay. Now, I wasn't able to avoid my trial of the dentist, but having my mom there with me allowed me to endure it in a way that I would not have been able to do if she wasn't there. So sometimes deliverance means that God simply draws near to us, not that our circumstances change. But then if the circumstances don't change, they they hang on for longer than we want to, well, what what does that mean? What purpose can there be in such suffering? Is there purpose in our suffering? I'm not gonna pretend to know all the reasons why God might allow us to suffer in the ways that he does, but the Bible does tell us what suffering is for, what it accomplishes. I mean, what if God had delivered Jesus from the cross and exempted him from the suffering? What if God had heard his cries and did not delay? What if he would have sent angels down to just say, okay, I've had enough. I'm taking him off the cross. We're done. Then God's wrath would not have been satisfied and we would still be in our sins. And there would be no hope for us. There would be no comfort for us. And when we think about this we have to acknowledge that suffering has purpose. It's the very purpose for which Jesus came to earth was to suffer. And it had the biggest purpose that there has ever been. So we can't we can't write off that just because we're suffering that there's no purpose in it. Now you might be saying, "Okay, that's fine for Jesus. That's a big cosmic pur- purpose. That feels good. Of course you want to do that." What about my suffering? Does it have a purpose? Well it does. It has lots of purposes, but one of them that's very clear in Scripture, we find in Second Corinthians chapter one. If you want to turn there, we're going to read Second Corinthians chapter one, beginning in verse three. This is the purpose of suffering. It says, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, so that there's the purpose so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort we, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. One reason that we suffer is so that others can be comforted. This helps us, I think if we have in mind that we have a purpose in our suffering, this can help us suffer better, that we can endure this because we know that God is going to use it. Sometimes we can't see that until the other side of it. But when we are suffering for the sake of others, at no other place do we have as much solidarity with Jesus. In no other place does he identify with us as much because he suffered for the sake of others. That was his main thing. And when we suffer according to his main thing for the same reasons, he's very interested in that. And so there is a purpose. And it's that God wants to take the suffering that we go through and the comfort that we receive from it and then turn it around to comfort others. And you've seen this happen, right? You've walked through something before and God has taken it and used it for the benefit of somebody else. Maybe it was alcoholic parents and you walk through that and you grew up and you've dealt with a bunch of junk and then you see a teenage kid who's struggling with the same thing and you're able to come alongside of him or her and say, I know what it's like, here's what's helpful. Or maybe you experienced the the betrayal of a spouse and the divorce that followed and you've been able to go to somebody else who's going through that same thing and come alongside of them and help them to grieve the right ways and help them to find the resources they need and help them understand what they're feeling and that they're not crazy. Maybe you've endured some trials in parenting. Some of you are further along, have some more experience. You've been through the sleepless nights. You've been through the colicky babies. You've been through the doctor's appointments. You've been through special needs, learning disabilities, a bunch of other things. And you're able to come along other parents who are just now being inducted into this new trial. And you're able to say, here's some comfort. Here's some comfort. Because of the trial that you went through, you're able to turn that into comfort for someone else. You know, as I was... Looking at Psalm 22 th- over the last couple weeks and meditating on it, I couldn't help but think of Dave and Katie Hall. <sighs> I knew this was going to happen. I was like, praying this wouldn't happen. Uh, I talked to Dave this week. Uh, what I really wanted to do was have Dave and Katie up here with me and share with you what's been going on. If you don't know uh, Dave and Katie, uh, t- tremendous people, members of this church. they got four kids. Their youngest son, Landry, uh, has leukemia. And about 18, I don't remember how long ago it was, 18 months ago or so, he was diagnosed. And it absolutely, it's not an understatement to say that it rearranged their world entirely. Everything that they knew was now different. All their patterns of life, everything is now different because it revolves around this kid who's only two years old, I think, at the time, getting treatment for cancer. And of course, they're crying out, God, why have you forsaken me? why are you doing this? This is a helpless baby. Why are you allowing this to happen? And we've cried with them together. We have pleaded with them together. And David said, you know, it was crazy is that there were days where I was just angry, but at the same time I had to go, God's good because look what he's done. He's provided here. It's just this mixture. So I wanted them to, to come and share, but they're on vacation They're enjoying some time away that they haven't got to do because they love doing camping and they haven't been able to do it because of the cancer. And so they're taking every opportunity to go out and spend that time together. But he said, I could share some of this with you. And one of the things that I know about their story that pertains to this idea of God using our affliction for the sake of others is that we have uh, uh, some other close friends who their son six or seven years ago was Ian's age. Also had leukemia. And same questions for them, right? But they are now five, six years into the process, right? They've they've walked through a lot of it. And so when we heard about Dave and Katie, we s- said to our friends, hey, we've got these friends, would you be willing to talk to them? I don't even know what to tell them, but you've been here. And so one day, uh, they have to go to a children's hospital. I mean, it's just... <laughs> You get to know the place really well after that many years going every week to get treatment. And so they were down there and they know all the systems and everything and so they, they knew how to check to see if the halls were there. And so they checked, yeah, they were there, they were able to find their room and they just kind of surprise visited them, introduced themselves um, and just came alongside of them and were able to, to pray with them, identify with them in a way that none of us in this room could. They had a unique experience of suffering that God was able to turn, and Dave and Katie have said that those times were just invaluable to them to help them to walk through that. So when we look at our suffering, we have to remember that God has purposes for it to comfort others on the other side of it. So because of that, we can endure much more of the suffering for longer than we thought we could. We live in a broken world and pain and sickness and suffering are part of the consequences of sin for all of the human race. And as Christians, we're not exempt from this. But God is in the habit of redeeming suffering by using it to bring comfort and hope to others. And in this psalm, we see this very thing happen when Jesus crosses the border not just of suffering but of death and he does it for the, because there's purpose in his suffering. He's gonna bring comfort to others through his suffering. And so in Psalm 22, we've seen how we can offer our complaints to God in reverence, careful not to slander God and say that he's not good or that he's not just, but in humble boldness present our griefs to him. We've seen how to plead with God, that we come to him not based on our merits, but as on our helplessness and on our relationship with him. And we've seen that the nature of deliverance is often God's nearness and strength to endure rather than the removal of the circumstances or us from the circumstances. And lastly, we've seen that suffering is often not something to escape but something that God gives for us to anticipate that he can use to comfort others. I'm going to invite uh, Dylan and the band to come forward and get ready as we close. I want to draw your attention to the last line of line of Psalm 31. It says they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Just before Jesus died, he uttered these words, it is finished. And in the Hebrew, it's almost the same, he has done it. God accomplished it. He endured agony, grief, suffering, slander, and forsakenness so that by his blood, He could purchase families from every tribe, tongue, and nation so that the worst suffering, eternal suffering, could be alleviated. Now we've been reading from Psalm 22, but in Psalm 21, just before it, at the end of it, this eternal suffering is described. The writer says, your hand, God, will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and a fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. <laughs> though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight and you will aim at their faces with your bows. God, as it were, has two arrows in the quiver of his wrath. One bow was set on the string and pulled and shot through the soul of Christ 2,000 years ago. And through Christ's sufferings he secured a path for all those who would repent of their sins and believe that Christ has stood as their substitute accepting the wrath of God on their behalf and those who flee to him find shelter and comfort from eternal affliction. But God has another arrow in his quiver. It is set on the bow and the spring is pulled tight And when the time comes, he will let it fly and like a thief in the night it will come and his wrath will pour out just as we see it described in Psalm 21. And it will be a terrible day for those who are not in Christ. But we have a God who hears the cries of the helpless, a, a God who hears the cries of those who say, I am a sinner and I need help. And he comes quickly to rescue them. And so we are sent with this message just like at the end of the Psalm, that there is a God who offers a remedy for affliction, especially eternal affliction. And we are called to tell all to flee to him to be found in Christ, to cry out to him. For one day, all those who are in Christ will, like David writes in Psalm 22, it says, from you comes my praise in the great congregation my vows I will perform before those who fear Him. All the congregation, before all the world, Jesus will stand and He will call us all to praise the Lamb who was slain, for the uh, who was afflicted, and stricken, and beaten, so that we could come in and be in Christ and be protected from the wrath to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray this morning that if there are any who who have not found shelter in you, that they would flee to you now. And God, I pray that as we close this morning, that we would remember that we can come to you with our complaints and our trials and our groanings, and you hear us and you come near to us. God, we want to worship and praise you now for all the ways you have delivered us, the way you've delivered those around us, and most of all, for delivering us from eternal separation from you. Because we are in Christ, we can now come before you secure and safe. In Jesus' name and for your glory, amen.